So we're, we're going to be reading Luke 12, verses uh, 4, and 4 through 7, and then verses 35 uh, and on. So starting in uh, Luke 12, verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are, no, are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are the servants whom the, whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we, we always come with one thing, which is that we want to hear from you. For we know that you are a God who is, and you're a God who has spoken and who continues to speak. So please, may our hearts be open to you this morning. May we love you. May we listen carefully. May we receive what it is you want to speak to us, and God, by your mercy and your grace, may we not walk away unchanged. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So there are two different things that we can mean when we say that we know something. Say, I know this. We can mean two different things. We can mean a lot of things, but here are two common things we mean. So, since COVID, I now know who the governor of Kentucky is. His name is Andy Bashir. I think we can all say that. To my shame, I might not have known that beforehand. Um, and if you asked me tomorrow on Monday, I will not have forgotten. If you asked me who's the governor, I would say it's Andy Bashir. If you asked me in the middle of the night, I'll probably remember, like, I really know who he is. I know his name. The thing is, it doesn't really make much impact on my life, right? Like, I won't wake up Monday morning and be like, hmm, I was going to wear this, but because Andy Bashir is the governor, I'm going to wear this. I don't think, well, you know, Monday at work, I should tackle these projects, but because Andy is governor, I'm going to tackle these other projects. Like, he's governor, I'm not going to forget that. I truly know that, but it really makes no difference in my day-to-day life. I'm going to live the same regardless. There's another way we can know something, and that's 
more similar to the fact that I know that I am married to Mariko. Same thing, if you ask me Monday, I will not have forgotten. If you wake me up in the middle of the night, I will know I am married to Mariko. I really know that. But the difference is that it has massive ramifications for my life. It changes how I spend my free time, because I am a married man. I'm caring about my wife and what she wants to do and her needs. It changes how I spend money. I'm not spending money just for myself. We're a family. We spend money as a unit. It changes how I think about parenting, how I pastor. You could say in one sense that as a husband, I'm always living in view of my wife. It's always in the back of my mind is how I process stuff, how good marriage should work. One of the keys of, of Christian discipleship, which we're looking at this morning, is how in a similar way, knowing God means we're living in view of him in every aspect of our life. And so as much as a good spouse should be living in view of their spouse and thinking through the day-to-day in view of their spouse, how much more so about God, who's the creator, author of everything, who's even better than a spouse, as wonderful as a spouse is. Living in view of God's holiness, his majesty, his power, living in view of his beauty and his goodness, in view of his grace and his love, In Christian discipleship, we grow in Christian discipleship when those truths begin to structure how we think about life, we go through our day both in conscious and unconscious ways. Now, the text we're looking at this morning, it's a large chunk of Scripture. We didn't read the whole thing. Um, And and just like last time, you know, rather than focusing on the leaves and and the individual trees, we're looking at the forest. Looking at the broad contours, what's the main point? And the main point of this section, which is, verses 1 through verse 48 is Jesus calling his disciples to live in view of God in, in, in all the various parts of our lives. And he mentions three specific circumstances to live in view of God. And they're these. They're living in view of God when others attack us, living in view of God in both abundance and scarcity, and then living in view of God in the absence of Jesus. So first, living in view of God when others attack us. Again, if you don't have a Bible open, I encourage you to open it. It's really great to be able to follow along. We're going to look, read verses 1 to 12. To, uh, well, I'm going to read it, and you're going to listen. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, First, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Not even one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. 
And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. One of the truths we find in this passage is kind of assumed as well as explicitly stated, but it's also found all throughout the New Testament. That if we want to follow Jesus, we will face opposition for that fact. It's going to happen. There will be opposition. Now, in America, we're in a unique place because religious liberties are, I mean, they're literally in our Constitution. And so we have unique liberties and freedoms that, that people throughout the world and throughout history do not have. And so when we refer to the opposition we face in America, we just got to recognize it's, it's a unique place. And so how this applies to America, we just got to be thoughtful about this. I think there's kind of two mistakes we can make when we think about opposition as Christians. And one is to just blow it out of proportion. We start talking about this kind of embattled minority, and, and we view all these things as this great persecution. At the end of the day, Christians in America, we don't face persecution like Christians do throughout the world like they have throughout history. Example, I'm a pastor, and the secret police has yet to raid my house. Hasn't happened. None of our leaders have been thrown in jail because they are leaders of this church. That is what persecution looks like. And so while, yes, there is opposition we may face, let's, we got to be careful that we don't pretend like we're going through something we're not going through. So that's one, that's one mistake. We can just blow it out of proportion and create this kind of embattled minority view. The other one is just to totally dismiss it and say, well, we don't face opposition. But to be the butt end of jokes at work, right, people know you're a Christian and they make jokes at your behalf. To lose relationships, friendships, because people find out what you believe and they're like, I don't want, this is severing. That, that may not be putting our lives in danger, but that really does hurt. And these kinds of oppositions are real, and though they are not as severe as what Christians experience throughout the world, that doesn't make them any easier. And so as a matter of fact, even in America, even where religious liberties are found in our Constitution, we will still find hostility if we want to follow Jesus sometimes even from other Christians, as we'll see. But Jesus highlights three specific ways that we will often be attacked as Christians. The first one is through internal pressures. This is what he gets at in verses 1 to 3, when he talks about beware of the leavens of, leaven of the Pharisees, the hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Jesus is calling out those kind of closed-door conversations that can happen. The secret meetings where people who present themselves one way on the outside all of a sudden let on for what they really think, who they really are. And the way that Christians can be attacked is when we're in those meetings and we speak up. This can be pretty, you know, harmless, quote-unquote, as like when you're at work and people are gossiping about the coworker who's kind of weird and annoying. And you're like, what do I do? Do I go along with this? Or do I say, hey guys, I, ew, I don't want to make fun of this person behind their back? Knowing that that's going to give backlash. It can be something as simple as that to a little bit more serious when you find your company is engaging in somewhat suspect business practices. And of course, what we found out more recently is this can happen in church meetings where there are church leaders who we revere, but for years they're exhibiting abusive leadership, even physical and sexual abuse of people in their church because Christians were not willing to stand up in those meetings and call him out. He was enabled for years and decades to do this. We will experience internal attack when we find ourselves in those places where we speak out and we say, this isn't right. What we are doing here contradicts my ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ. 
And I gotta say something. We can experience attack in that way. We can experience attack, and that, by the way, that's just the cost of integrity. Being one person in private and one person in public. Second, we can experience attack through external pressures. This is verses 8 and 9. I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Jesus is warning against this temptation of denying Jesus. Why? Because we're afraid of what people think of us. In the midst of a kind of public situation, whatever that may look like, it's warning against that. Why is he warning against that? Because those temptations will come. Every age has teachings of Jesus that are more or less popular. And there will always be beliefs that are very, very unpopular. And that there will be temptations to try to blunt those or try to minimize those or not hold to those. So Jesus' exclusive lordship, the fact that he came and said, I am the way, truth, and life. There is no salvation apart from me. That is very unpopular, very distasteful, even abhorrent to our culture. You say stuff like that, you're going to experience external pressure. The future judgment, where it talks about Jesus will come back and divide the sheep and the goats. <laughs> Again, the picture of Jesus in Revelation rarely makes it on Hallmark cards. Not a popular picture of Jesus. And then, of course, Jesus' lordship over sexual expression and sexuality. If we hold to these things, we're going to experience external pressure. Now, here's, we've got to be so careful here. When we experience attack from outside... We want to make complete certainty, make completely sure that it's not because we're being jerks. And that happens a lot of times with Christians. You say, well, I'm just being faithful. But no, you're just being a jerk. <laughs> Your tone of voice, what you're saying, the gr- stands you're taking. You know, it's like the color of the pew is not worth dying on, right? Like, like what are we standing on as people? Nonetheless, that being, that being clarified, and if we follow Jesus, we're going to experience pressure from outside. Where the, where, the, where the claims of Jesus come up against the claims of our culture and they, and they start to bang against each other. But third, we may even experience danger to our lives. That's verse 4. It says, Do not fear those who kill the body. Again, in America, it's illegal to kill you because you're a Christian. That's not the case in places like North Korea. So we may not experience this as much, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. The nine members of Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church who attended Bible study on June 17, 2015 probably didn't realize that attending Bible study would cost them their lives. If you remember, that was when Dylan Roof, 21-year-old white supremacist, came in and shot 13 members in this Bible study, killing nine of them. Now, obviously, there are racial motivations behind that, but there are more places than just the church where members in black communities congregate. He picked a church. Those Christians died because they went to Bible study. It can still happen even in America. We can, following Jesus can put our life in jeopardy. Okay, when we experience hostility, which we will in various forms, what do we do? Well, the call is to live in view of God. In the midst of hostility, we remember who God is, that he is the one in control, that he is the one holding all things in his hands. And as we live in view of God, it enables us to experience hostility and handle it well. Now, Jesus calls us to live in view of God in two different ways, specifically. The first one, the way we live in view of God in the midst of hostility, is we do it by fearing God. Look at verse 5. I warn you whom to fear. 
Fear him who after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Okay, well, if your life's really in danger, that's not the most encouraging thing to say, right? Besides, like, doesn't perfect love cast out fear? Like, I, the dynamic between me and God, I don't want it to be one of fear. That's kind of our natural reaction. But when the Bible says fear God, what it's talking about is he's saying, look, take God seriously for who he is. God is the almighty creator of heaven and earth, the one who sustains us, the one who speaks and it comes into being. It's just take him seriously for who he is. Think of it like this. If you had an enemy who is an expert uh, uh, mixed martial arts fighter, that would be really scary. To have someone who knows many different ways to hurt you and kill you actually want to hurt you and kill you, like, I probably would not leave my home, right? Like, I'm, <laughs> my skills are not with my fists, so I, I don't know what I would do. Contrast, imagine if your best friend is a expert mixed martial arts fighter. Well, then that's awesome. <laughs> it's like, I, if he's with me, I can go anywhere. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of anybody else. Like, try to mess with us. He can kill you in 18 ways in two seconds. Like, I'm fine. All of a sudden, his power, his skill is actually for my benefit. No, I'm not going to mess with him. I'm going to take him seriously. I'm not going to challenge him to a wrestling match. But I'm, I'm not afraid of anybody else. That's what Jesus is getting at. And we spend time worrying about people who are made out of dust. Of a lifespan of maybe 90 years if they're incredibly blessed. When in fact, God is the one who is our friend. But Jesus is saying, take people less seriously and take God more seriously. Second, so he says, first, first way to live in view of God in the midst of hostility is fear God. Second way is look to the sparrows. Look at verses 6 to 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than sparrows. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If God cares about sparrows, which aren't that important, which are a dime a dozen, if he cares about them, how much more will he care about you who are made in his image, whom God has placed his own image upon you? And we all can think of the fall when the birds go south. And it seems like every day there's a, a flying V of birds and there's just thousands and thousands and thousands. And what he's saying is God doesn't just know there are birds. like He knows the individual existence of every single one of those birds. He knows what they need. He knows what their bird concerns are. He's concerned about each individual one of those birds. If he's concerned about them, how much more so is he concerned about each one of us and our unique needs and wants and hopes and dreams? When we face hostility, it can be easy to think that God's abandoned us or he doesn't care about us. But look, if God cares about the sparrows, oh, he cares about you so much more than you think he does. How much is he concerned with us? He's numbered the hairs of our heads. So when hostility comes, what do we do? We live in view of God. We recognize that God is far scarier than anything we'll meet in this world, and he's our friend. And more than that, he's also far more concerned with us than we realize. So that's the first, that's the first situation. We live in view of God in hostility. Second, 
We live in view of God in both abundance and scarcity. Look at verses 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to a man, Who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of life possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. What's the problem in this story? God, God calls this man a fool. Is it because he's rich? No. The Bible is very nuanced about wealth. It doesn't view wealth as just an inherent negative. It says if you know, God owns all things and if he blesses us, we ought to be thankful. Is it that he acquired his wealth through unjust means? He's corrupt? He's oppressing people? There's no sense of that anywhere. It seems to be a picture of a man who was very industrious, who worked very hard, and he was very, did very well for himself. What's the problem? The problem with this man is that in the midst of his abundance, he forgot God. In the midst of his abundance, he forgot God. He was probably a devout Jew. I mean, this, Jesus is speaking to Jews and speaking to a church. A devout Jew who's living like an atheist. The world revolves around himself. He's not taking any notice of others who are made in God's image. And he devotes his last days, the last of his life, which is a gift from God, he devotes it to building storage houses for his possessions that will not last. Building things to hold grain that's wrong. That's why God calls him a fool. He's laid up treasure where it doesn't really matter, and he's completely impoverished where it matters all the most. Imagine you're running a marathon, and a marathon's 26.2 miles. It's a long ways. You can't train for a week, usually months. So you sign up for this marathon, and you're like, okay, I should first go buy some running shoes because I'm going to be running a lot. So you start looking into it, and you realize running shoes are a black hole, and there's a huge market. And so you start spending hours and hours and hours and then all of a sudden you realize, well, I should probably get a running watch to track my mileage and help me train, and that's another black hole. And so you're spending hours and hours and hours, and then you realize, well, I need to get, like, running clothes and, and like, look at, like, dietary supplements and all these things. And so you, you come to the day of the marathon, and, like, you, you are wearing, like, the best pair of shoes for your running style and your size and weight, and, like, you've got the best running watch with GPS capabilities, and your clothing is, like, top-notch. The only problem is you forgot to train. It's like, okay. You know, it's important to have shoes, right? That's not unimportant. But you forgot the thing that matters most. That's what he's telling this man. Like, it's not that you shouldn't have worked hard. It's not that you shouldn't have been industrious. But you forgot the one thing that mattered far more than anything, which is God himself. You succeeded at lesser things, and you failed at the crucial thing. Instead, in the midst of abundance, when God blesses us, Live in view of God. Because at the end of the day, possessions, they're gifts. They're part of God's grace to us. But they're the ornaments of life. 
They're not what's substantial. What matters most is not what we own, it's who we're becoming. And so I have a kind of a self-diagnostic question for us as we think about money, and this applies whether we're in abundance or scarcity. But is our money making us more like God, or is it making us less like God? Great self-diagnostic question. Is our money making us more like God? Is it making us more dependent on him, more trusting in his provision? Is it making us more generous, more hospitable, more thankful? Or is it making us more self-dependent, greedy, or selfish? Live in view of God in the midst of abundance. What's interesting is that Jesus then moves on to how do we live in view of God? The opposite, when things are scarce. This is verses 22 to 34. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouses nor barns, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If you then, who are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Will you have little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Now, when Jesus is speaking to those in scarcity, he begins with an encouragement. He uses this illustration of you know, ravens in the grass of the field don't have 401ks. They don't have rainy day funds. They don't have homes that, you know, that we would think of. And yet every year they're provided for. Like grass cannot plan, birds don't have the ability to do advanced planning at every year. God is providing what they need. And again, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If God cares about the ravens this way, if he cares about the grass or the field, which isn't even sentient, of course he's going to care for us and our needs. He's going to provide for us. That's what verse 24 and 28 are getting at. If God, you know, if these ravens have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them, of how much more value are you than the birds? 28, if God clothes the grass, which is alive in the field, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Something that's really crazy, though, if you think about it, is who Jesus is saying this to. Because if you're like me, I I think of all the exceptions to this, right? Because people have died in poverty. Who was Jesus speaking this to originally? The United Nations defines extreme poverty like this. They define it as a condition that's characterized by severe deprivation of basic human needs, including food, safe drinking water, sanitation, facilities, health, shelter, education, information. Depends not only on income, but also on access to services. The crowd that Jesus is speaking to, that he's making a statement to, if not a majority, a large portion of them would have fit this definition of living in extreme poverty. God isn't making this promise to the suburbs. He's making it to the poorest of the poor. Saying, look to the ravens and the, and the lilies of the field. If God provides for them, 
He will provide for you. What's interesting is that regardless for abundance or for scarcity, the call is still the same. If you're experiencing abundance, live in view of God. If you're experiencing scarcity, live in view of God. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. See, money can consume us in, 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 in both abundance and scarcity. In abundance, money can consume us because we're worried about managing our money and keeping our money and what to do with it and how to handle it. When we're in scarcity, we're worried about how do I get more money? And either way, it can consume us in a way that's not supposed to. Instead, Jesus says, look, whether you're experiencing abundance or you're experiencing scarcity, seek God's kingdom first. Don't be consumed with money. Live in view of God's reign, his presence, his provision, and ultimately his judgment. So here we have living in view of God and hostility, living in view of God in both abundance and scarcity, and lastly, we see living in view of God in the absence of Jesus. And we're just going to look at verses 35 to 38. Say, dress for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second Watch for the third and finds them awake. Blessed are those servants. Very simple illustration. Man who owns a large household goes to a wedding. Servants don't, again, back, you know, weddings in these times were like week-long affairs. Can you imagine planning a week-long wedding? Um, so you didn't know if he was going to be back the next day, in a week, in a month. Saying, your master's gone. Servants know he'll return, but they don't know when it'll be. It could be tomorrow, it could be a month, it could be a year. You don't know. How will you live in the meantime? That's the illustration here. And Jesus is giving this parable specifically for his disciples, because like the master who went away, Jesus is about to go away. And Jesus is giving this as parable for all of us who live between the ascension of Jesus into heaven and his return. Where in a sense... Jesus is absent. Of course, he's present by his spirit, which we know by faith. And in fact, Jesus in in the Gospel of John says it was better for him to go so that he could send the spirit. But nonetheless, we don't see Jesus with our eyes. We don't talk to him like I talk to a friend. I don't hear his voice auditorily, normally. I know him by faith. And the downside of this is that many times it can feel and it can seem and it can appear like Jesus is absent, although he is present by his Spirit. Because in a sense, he really is absent. And we're waiting for his return. I was a a philosophy major in undergrad. And uh, where I went, they had a a big emphasis. uh, It was a Christian school, but the emphasis was on understanding thinkers on their own terms, not in an apologetics, like we're going to show why they're wrong, but we're really going to study people like Nietzsche and people like David Hume and other atheists and various non-Christians. Now you may think, okay, taking an 18-year-old, a 19-year-old, a 20-year-old and having them read someone like Frederick Nietzsche, who's a brilliant mind, although he was an atheist, that sounds like a recipe for losing your faith. And it was hard at times, but you came to realize something pretty quickly, which is that there is no intellectual certainty in anything. 
We cannot reason towards any kind of intellectual certainty. It's just a fact. Every worldview, Christianity, scientific materialism, secular humanism, Buddhism, Islam, they all rest on assumptions that you cannot prove and that you have to assume to even get the project off the ground. And so you're looking at a continuum of probability. Something's either more probable or less probable. And I tell you what, when you put Christianity against other worldviews on the continuum of probability, it does pretty well. So, I, so to some extent, reading something like Nietzsche didn't really bother me. But when I was a senior, I took a senior-level course, and I studied something called the hiddenness of God, which is a more contemporary argument against God's existence. It, it, it's really in the last 30, 40 years has become really popular. It's become a, a pretty significant argument against God's existence. And this is how it goes. It says, if God is a personal God, if he wants to be in relationship with people, then why doesn't he make himself more obvious? Why are there people that we all probably know who seem to be very thoughtful, very open-minded, yet do not believe in God? How does that happen if God exists? This was one argument that really, really bothered me, and I wrote a 15-page term paper trying to debunk it. Now, here's the thing. The, the problem with this argument is not the intellectual merit of it. There are many explanations for why God can seem hidden in this world. The problem is the, the existential weight of it. Because all of us have experienced times in our life where God does, in fact, seem to be absent. And suffering can be hard as a Christian, but there's nothing more discombobulating than when you go to God and he doesn't seem to be there. And so what haunts us from that argument is not the intellectual side of it, because there are explanations and answers that are very good. It's the existential weight of it, that we feel it. But remember what Jesus is telling us. Saying, I'm going away. And you're going to have to wait for me to come back. And so we shouldn't be surprised that God can seem hidden, because Jesus has told us that's what it's going to be like. We're going to be like servants waiting for our master to return. So in the absence of Jesus, what do we do? We live in view of God. And what does that mean? It means that we remember that we are a waiting people. We are waiting for him to return. Think of it like a doctor's office. If you've been to a doctor's office, if you go in the afternoon and, and the doctor's behind schedule, like you may wait 45 minutes in a waiting room. And when you have little kids, that's an eternity. I mean, when you're by yourself, it's annoying, but, you're on your, but when you have little kids, it's like, oh my word, I just lost 10 years off my life. But here's the thing. No one in the doctor's waiting room forgets that they're waiting. Like, no one shows up and they're like, mm, I'm going to pick this paint you know, scheme and starts painting. No one's, like, ordering furniture from Ashley's to arrive. Like, everyone remembers, even though this feels like an eternity, it's just a waiting pattern. And pretty soon I'll be let through to see the doctor. That's what Jesus is telling us. Life can seem crazy in all kinds of ways. Don't forget you're waiting. This is not your final home. This is not the end. The most, the most significant way I think that we can live in view of God is to remember that we are waiting for the return of our Lord. How do we live in view of God when we face hostility? This isn't, this isn't forever. This life's a flash in the pan and it's over. And then we'll be with Christ. How do we live in view of God in abundance and scarcity? We remember that we're waiting for Jesus to come back. We can endure all things. 
How do we live through the dark nights of the soul when God seems so distant? We remember that we are, in fact, waiting for the return of our Lord. And yes, he's present by his spirit, but we're waiting to see him face to face. In Jesus' absence, we live in view of God. Now, I, I think most of us in this room would affirm with deep conviction that God exists. But the key is learn to live with that, live in view of that fundamental truth. Not like I know Andy Bashir exists and he's a governor, but like I know that who my spouse is and it affects how I think and what I do and the truths of God are being to form how I think about my life and how I live my life in conscious and unconscious ways. That's the key. To live in view of God on Monday morning when we begin our week. What's the most significant fact to me right now is that God is and he is who the Bible says he is and all the truths that come with that. We live in view of God when life is sunny and beautiful and things are just going well. And we remember these are gifts from God. We live in view of God when, things is, when life is overwhelming, when our faith is weak, when our failures and our sins seem too great to bear. Because the most fundamental truth about God for us is that he loved us when we were sinners. He died for us when we were very far from him. And he saved us by sheer grace. Living in view of God is remembering no matter what Monday brings, no matter how we may fail, no matter how much we failed in the past, we are beloved. God delights in you who are his children. That's why Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So we live in view of him. Let's pray. God, we, we ask, we plead with you. May we be a people who live in view of you. Protect us from being people who have lots of knowledge, who know many things about God, but live as atheists because it makes no difference on our lives. May we grow deep in our knowledge of you and our understanding of you, but may it be a knowledge that impacts how we live Monday to Friday, how we think about all of our lives. And when we experience the various hardships of life, whether it's hostility, whether it's scarcity, whether it's dark nights of the soul, may we keep you in view. May your reality and your truth inform what we think and how we feel more than anything else. We ask this in the name of your Son who died for us. Amen.